Hey folks, welcome to part two of the Jason Hardrath saga, the king of FKTs. Uh, my name is Mason Gravely. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. And exciting news, we are on the road, not with the show, but with a film about Jason's story called Journey to 100. As many of you know, I work at Athletic Brewing Company as my day job in marketing uh, non-alcoholic craft beer. Jason was a guest on our show two years ago, and the relationship has just grown to the point that we have a documentary uh, with my day job, Athletic Brewing. Jason is one of our pro athletes now. And yeah, kind of crazy story that involves the podcast. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to be putting on this um, nationwide film tour. It's not hugely nationwide. There's only like a handful of screenings, but uh, they're all out west. And uh, I'd love for you to make it. I'm going to be there except for one, the one in Seattle. I can't make it now, um, but I'll be at the rest of them. Would love to see you there. Um, the first one is this Saturday in Denver. Uh, technically Golden, Colorado at the American Mountaineering Center. We still have two tickets to give away. If anyone wants to claim them, just email me, Mason at Athletic... No, I'm sorry, Mason at AdventureSportsPodcast.com. Come and get them, uh, as well as the Portland and Seattle. I think those might be taken now, but just email me anyway. We might have a couple extra laying around. Um, would love to get some ASP listeners there. Uh, but Jason, if you didn't hear... Uh, to the, the first part, listen to part one in, of this episode. It's uh, from last Tuesday. Um, just, just scroll back two episodes and you'll see it. Part one, uh, Jason climbed the 100 highest peaks in Washington State. Um, not just, you know, as, as a major adventure. Um, he, he, he did it in record time, by the way, but he also did that as his 100th fastest known time. So yes, he had 99 fastest known times, uh, which is basically doing something faster than anyone's done them, uh, a route or climbing a mountain or something. Jason had 99 of those, and for his 100th, decided to climb a list uh, of the 100 highest peaks in Washington as one giant FKT. So pretty wild story, and that is where the, the name Journey to 100 comes from. So this interview with Jason that you're listening to today is from days after he finished the adventure, just a few days after. This was the last summer, by the way. So everything was fresh. Everything was new. We had, um, I mean, he, he was still probably breathing heavy. It was that close to the finish line that we did the interview. So uh, pretty cool to finally be able to release it in time for the screenings of Journey to 100. Uh, check out the film, check out the trailer, and come see us in Denver this Saturday. I'd love to meet you. All right. Let's get into the episode. Uh, there were a few major cruxes. Uh, I already mentioned the Bonanza Dark Traverse, which ended up just being a phenomenal favorite experience. That was that was a crux. That was one that was in my mind, like, this is key. Like, can I send this? Because some reports are like, oh, it's like 5'8". And it's like, I knew I could climb 5'8", but the question was, can I climb it efficiently on this razor ridge line with loose rock? And you know, everybody complained about how terrible the rock was. And you know, then there's these 5'8 plus moves. And it ended up, in my opinion, much closer to another person's uh, report who said, oh, it's closer to 5'6". And you know, the, the rock is really good in some places and bad in others. And that was more what it's like for me, where it was like, 
you got some solid, usually where the movements were harder, the rock was more solid because rock can only be so loose if it's going to be vertical enough to be fifth class is usually a good sort of rule of thumb. When you get into the fourth class range is when you can get some really sketchy rock. But yeah, so that one was a crux. And then I knew I wanted to climb the northeast buttress of uh, Goody uh, because it made it made some logistical sense. And it's just such a classic of the Pacific Northwest Alpine to, to, to do that buttress. And that's like 2000 feet of fifth class um, rock. And so that was kind of a crux in my mind as I was building this thing out. Uh, the Chilliwacks, getting into the Chilliwacks with the Canadian border being closed, a definite crux. The Lago group that I did early on was kind of a crux in sort of a its expedition nature, like because it's just so remote and so far out there. Then, what's the one I'm forgetting right now? Then there was also uh, Tupshin had some fifth class rocks, so it was on my list to be aware of. The Dorado Needle has a 5-9 boulder problem which it's part of the inspiration traverse where you do five different peaks that day. Um, or my plan was to do all five peaks in a, in a single push and to know I had this like five, nine exposed boulder problem, which I actually ended up having to try it twice because it's, uh, it's exactly my weakness in climbing. It's like a, a hand jam that you have to trust in this flaring crack. And then you just have to like compression this like refrigerator of rock and then uh, work your feet up and throw to the top. So it's like only a three move, two move boulder problem, but just being up there and being, I think I was 40, I think I was 43 days in, it might've been a bit more than that, but you know, having pushed my body so hard, instead of being able to just sort of call upon, you know, that extra muscle to just like, oh, like my foot just blew, whatever, I'll just pull harder with my arms. Um, I had a foot pop off. And it was like, oh, I don't have the power to just muscle through it on this hand, hand jam. So I ended up having to like back off and, and repeat the whole thing um, <laughs> to just like get my head straight and like shake the arms out and then go again. Because um, I mean, it's a world of difference when you're massively fatigued and you want to make a boulder problem versus when you're fresh. So that was kind of a, that was a little bit scary in that moment to, to be exposed and trying to make these moves that are moves I'm not normally that practiced or comfortable with um and then to have the foot pop and have to reverse it all um and get back down to solid ground and re regroup and go again yeah that was a, a pretty big moment it's just like you've got to tag the true summit of every single one of these and that one was one of the hardest cruxes because it's like you're right there you're almost to the summit but you're not on the true summit until you've made that boulder move and taken like 10 more steps so yeah, that was a, that was a big moment right there. And one that was like weighing on me as I went through this process, knowing like this crux is out in front of me, this crux is out in front of me. Um, so pulling through it and, and making those moves and getting to the top of that one was a big deal. So yeah, there was a few, there's a few different physical and, and technical cruxes. Was there a peak that felt extra special to summit? Maybe it was tied to one of those cruxes, maybe not. Yeah, I think every time I tagged one of the peaks that was something I knew was going to be a crux that would test me. So tagging tagging the top of Goody uh, felt really, I mean, it was an amazing climb. Like just being on that 2,000 feet of amazing fifth class, just charging straight up into the sky was awesome. Like 
I lived, you know, like I said, it's about the journey you're on and the life you get to live while you're pursuing these goals. Cause it's not like you suddenly feel amazing. Um, and you're some different person when you finish, it's like, you better enjoy the process along the way. Cause as soon as you finish you, you, you're just going to go on to like trying to find the next thing. Um, so I love those moments, but also making the top of that with this project in mind, it's like, Oh, that's a big thing that's done and up climbing and down climbing Tupshin, you know, another one where it's like, okay, those fifth class moves are done. And then, I mean, the Chilliwacks were this thing that was sort of larger than life. Cause everybody talks in the Bulgers community about how it's kind of this crux, right? Cause they're hard to access even normally when the Canadian border is open. Cause they're normal, easiest access. You have to cross into Canada and then hike back into the U S that's the easiest route of access to get to them. And that was closed. So I had to go in through this like legendarily heinous approach via Silver Creek, which you have to take a 40 mile boat ride just to get to the start of Silver Creek. And then you bushwhack as hard as you can for basically a day to cover the seven miles, seven and a half miles. It took us 11 hours, 22 minutes to go 7.5 miles to get up to Silver Lake. And you're just you know, mosquitoes bouncing off your ears and in your nose and in your eyes and you're, you're, you can't see the ground and you're schwacking through. And there's this, <laughs> this head wall where you're just like veggie belaying yourself up, just pulling yourself through plants up this, you know, near fourth class, uh, type terrain, just insane. So, and you, plus you have, you know, your food and your sleep kit on your back as you're doing this and like leading up to it, I knew it was going to be just a huge crux, a test piece of the whole project. And so all throughout the, these, uh, you know, 90, what was it? Well, at that point it was 80, 80 some peaks leading up to it. 87, I think is what I was at before we went in the 87 peaks leading up to it. Whenever we were on loose rock, um, there's a peak in the Chilliwax called Custer that, um, everybody chalked it up as being the loosest piece of junk peak of any peak in the whole list. So it's like anytime we were on a peak that had loose rock, it's like, oh, Custer practice, Chilliwax practice. Anytime we were doing heinous bushwhacking, uh, I would always be like, oh, Chilliwax practice, like get, getting getting the mind and body ready. And it was really true. The bushwhacking I had to face to get in there was just a longer version of the hardest bushwhacking I had to do in other places of this project to get up and down these peaks. And then the climbing on the rock there there was loose, loose scree and talus where you're, you know, sliding as far back as you step forward when you're trying to go uphill. And then there was glacier travel. And then there were the, the mox peaks, which hard mox is considered to be the hardest peak to summit of all of the Chilliwacks or excuse me, of the Chilliwacks and of the entire Bulgers list. Um, it has the most sustained uh, technical climbing and it's got some intricate, difficult route finding where you have to go, okay, I got to go down this goalie and then over and up this proper goalie. Cause if you go anywhere else, it's like, wow, this is way harder than it should be. So like making sure to stay on the route that stays appropriately, you know, mid, mid fifth class instead of much harder. And, you know, so all of this is rolled into this package and then knowing that after we do easy mocks and hard mocks and readout. So all six peaks in this, this group, we then had an eight mile talus walk slash forest walk slash bushwhack uh, downhill to get to the trail that we then had a half marathon 
um, you know, 13 miles, 14, more, well, closer to 15 miles to get out after doing all this. So it's like, it had to be very cleanly executed, but all of these things that had to be endured, uh, in these other pushes, these other link ups sort of were the training and the practice. And it was awesome that after we had the heinous bushwhack to get in, we, we, we'd sort of planned our food and expected to climb two peaks a day kind of being conservative, like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do two per day while we're in the Chilliwack's group. Um, and we ended up climbing three on our first day and it was like, okay, uh, like this, this is going well. And we managed that same day to walk all the way across one of the glaciers we needed to cross, uh, before, uh, it was dark. And so we were able to camp fairly close to the other three peaks we wanted to do at a coal and, then we climbed, we made the decision to climb both hard mocks and easy mocks out of what's called Cull of the Wild, which normally easy mocks you, you climb it from the glacier on the opposite side. But we'd done our research and from, you know, input from people like Matt Lemke made the decision like, no, let's, if we climb them both from this side, it will be more efficient. It'll be faster because we're comfortable on fifth class rock. And we ended up that day climbing both hard mocks and easy mocks before noon. And it was really fun. Uh, once we come out of the Chilliwacks, when we'd finished, Ashley was like, oh man, so many people from, from the mountaineering community lost their mind when you guys finished both moxes before noon. And one of the guys who'd helped me plan it, sure enough, like he had it sprayed across his social media. His name's Alden Grant Rhino. He's a phenomenal guy. You should actually have him. He just finished the entire list himself. Um, so it'd be really, really funny if you had him on. And he, yeah, he sure enough, like has it sprayed across. Like he's like Hardrath and Nate and, and Longhurst do easy mocks and hard mocks before noon. No big deal. <laughs> um, so it was super fun to see people getting stoked on, on that, that crux of the project coming together and us just getting in there and crushing. And sure enough, like it ended up being key. Like you want to talk about a key moment as we're walking out of the Chilliwacks after finally getting read out and, you know, doing all six, all six peaks that are in there, Rom, Custer, Spickard, both of the moxes and readout. We're white, we're hiking out and we're on this ridge line where we get some views down below and we see what looks like a campfire, right? Like some smoke coming up and it's like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's a wilderness area and like humans aren't supposed to have fires down there. And it's like, well, humans, humans can make, you know, be, be terrible people was kind of the, the, the simple way we put it and didn't think anything of it. Like, that's lame kind of thing. And then move on and back to focusing on like getting out of there. Anyways, we hike all the way out. And the next day we're up on Shuxon, which has a view back at Bear Creek and the uh, Bear Ridge that we were on to exit. And there's just billowing smoke. Someone had started a fire in there. And basically the area we had come out of was burning. So if we'd been one day slower or two days slower, we might not have been able to exit that way which is just crazy to think back on that it was literally a matter of hours that we made it through on and could have potentially been trapped by, by a fire burning up the very hill that we came down. So that was, that was a pretty wild part of the trip. I, I mean, there's like, you, like you said, and I know this was, you know, the mindset going in is so many things could prevent this from happening. Not that, you know, you could do everything perfectly, but the weather couldn't co cooperate. Um, fires literally started happening all around anything with mother nature could have happened to prevent you from doing this or, or doing it the way you wanted to how much of this would you contribute to luck you know what i mean like how lucky did you get would you say with some of this stuff like that sounds unbelievably fortunate that you got out just in time 
Um, I would say, you know, something like this, there's a huge amount, like the, the mountain has the last call. Mother nature has the last call. And I think in recorded history, we had the second, my climbing partner and I, uh, his name's Nathan Longhurst. He's a phenomenal kid. He climbed 65 of the peaks with me. Um, Holy crap. 65. He then went on to climb the rest of the ones, uh, that he hadn't climbed this year. He'd already climbed a few in the past as, as a younger kid. Um, and became the second person to finish them in a single season. I think his total time is 94 days. So he would have quartered the current standing record, the youngest person to ever finish the Bulgers list. And to have that be an outcome because this kid came and joined me on day one and then just stuck with it. And like we worked together as a team so well. How, how did y'all connect? Did you know each other beforehand? No, we'd never met. He had reached out on social media because he actually wanted to beat one of my other FKTs. And I'm usually really friendly. So I like talked him through what to do to get a better time than me and like analyzed what his plan was. And then he's like, well, what are you up to? And I was like, well, I'm going to start this big project. He's like, dude, that's awesome. Can I join you on your first day? And I'm like, sure. Because, you know, the first day was pretty low key, like not very technical. So it wasn't, you know, there wasn't like a risk of like, oh, this person that maybe doesn't know what they're doing is going to come out and get themselves hurt. And then I'm going to have to stop and take care of them. I was like, oh, we're going to go for a long, a really long run together and tag some peaks along the way that are pretty low key. And so he can always just turn around and go back to his car if it doesn't go well. But he soldiered through that whole day and was super strong. And then we just kept making the decision to climb together. And yeah, ended up climbing 65 of the peaks together during the project. And then I reclimbed St. Helens with him on the about three days after I finished, because it was his uh, final day and his family had gotten a permit to climb with him as he climbed his hundredth uh, Bulger Peak. And yeah, he's uh, he's now the youngest person ever to finish the list. At um, 21? At 21 years old. Wow. Jason, that's so crazy. I mean, y'all must have really just, I don't know, gelled, you know, been compatible for to be able to spend that much time together without really knowing each other beforehand um, and do so well. Holy cow. So yeah, I would say there's definitely a degree of luck to it. Um, (laughs) And I mean, yeah, we had the uh, second longest run of the second longest dry spell in Washington history, as far as it rained on us the first day. And then we had some like minor like spurts of rain and hail here and there, but like not another rainstorm until, yeah, basically it was when he was climbing his uh, uh, on the sixth when he had to climb St. Helens, it rained on us. So like had this great dry spell. The downside to that is it was also an epic heat wave, you know, record breaking heat wave. So it's like there were cons to it, but that I had like, would I take enduring insane heat over climbing on wet rock multiple days in the row in a row with zero visibility? Yeah, I'll go ahead and take that trade. I'll suffer in the heat for the sake of being able to see where I'm going and and not have to try to pull fifth class moves on wet rock. Um, so it's like, yeah, that was lucky and fortunate. It wasn't, you know, it's not like magic, magic land. Like maybe some people might make it out to be like, oh, your weather was perfect. That's amazing. It's like, oh, there were some drawbacks, but yeah, definitely some luck there, uh, for visibility sake. And yeah, that like those fires that broke out, um, one of them closed highway 20 down and I did lose some time there cause I had to drive around, but that I'd already gotten those, gotten the peaks that were uh, closed by that fire and that I was able to crank out the peaks that were close to it shortly thereafter. That was one of those, uh, sort of boots on the ground game time decision 
to like change up my peak order. Um, Cause originally I was going to do some other peaks first. And then it's like, Oh man, this fire's burning kind of close to where these three peaks are. So I'm going to bump them up the list and do them right now. Um, like with a fire burning nearby um, so that they don't have a chance to close the land or close the trails. Um, yeah. I mean, if that fire had started just a little bit more, you know, West, it's like those peaks would have been closed and I wouldn't have gotten them. So it's like, yeah, a massive, a massive amount of luck is a part of this for sure. And, you know, some people have like been like, well, you planned really well. Like you, you, you intentionally chose to climb those peaks that were the higher fire risk first. It's like, well, yeah, there's definitely planning as well, but there's also luck because you get the right lightning strike and you could still get a fire in an area that normally doesn't get a fire, especially when you're having a record heat wave. You know, we've talked about the luck and talked about maybe the crux of the experience and when things weren't feeling too good. When did, when in your mind did it feel like, okay, I've got this, or this feels, I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. You know, on this show, we talk a lot about the adventure, but it's honestly the time between the adventure that is most important, being adventure ready, as we say. And the most important aspect of that is knowing your body and knowing what's going on inside your body. And the most important company that can help you do that is Inside Tracker, literally tracking what's going on inside your body. Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data and provides you with a clear picture of what exactly is going on so that you can make changes to your diet or see what's working, what isn't. And how they do it is they analyze all the data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to help you optimize your body and know what's really going on. So if you'd like to learn more or get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store, go to InsideTracker.com com slash adventure sports that is inside tracker.com slash adventure sports inside tracker can get you ready and keep you ready for all your favorite adventure sports that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode when the two moxes went before noon mm. um when when hard mocks and easy mocks both went yeah that was kind of like the moment where it's like everything from here on out is stuff that has no technical element that has ever in the past turned me around and so it was kind of like okay now now i put the pedal down now it's not you know being conservative and being uh you know conscious of like making sure i have enough energy for these technical uh route finding you know, diff, you know, difficult in multiple ways peaks. It's like now it's these open peaks with trail approaches straight onto glacier that probably has boot track on it. It's like all that's left to do now is just put the pedal down and go to the finish line. And so when I got to those last seven peaks, Shuxon, Baker, Glacier, Rainier, Little Tahoma, uh, Adams, and St. Helens, it was just what is the fastest human possible way I can do this? What, what is my human body capable of? Like, how little can I sleep? How hard can I push? And just went for it to bring it home at that point. What was it like to revisit your old friend, friend uh, Mount Rainier? Obviously a lifelong goal for many people. And this was just one of a list of 100 peaks for you to hit. Yeah, day 48. Um, <laughs> it, it, it actually threw a surprise my way. It threw a curveball my way. As I was climbing, when I went past Camp Muir, one of the ranger one or one of the guides was like, Hey, 
uh, ladder fell down two days ago. It was raining up there. Uh, so everything was mashed potatoes. So uh, they weren't able to get up and fix it in the night. They tried to end run it and couldn't find a way around. So there is another ladder up there and there is a team up there uh, with the tools to fix it, but I've not received a report that it's actually passable yet. Um, so it was like, oh man, like what if I come all this way and get shut down, get turned around by something that in my mind is as simple as Rainier, where it's just like, this is a well-groomed route guided every single day of the week, just a, a super casual route. But because of the weather and the conditions, it ended up melting out too fast and like can't be passed, but like made the decision like, no, I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust the team. I'm going to trust that they're going to be motivated to get this work done and get their, you know, get their clients to the top of the mountain. And I'm just going to keep climbing. And sure enough, sure enough, as we were about a hundred feet below the, the crevasse in question, the teams came down with the tools on their back. And I just started profusely thanking them. Like, is, you know, is it rebuilt? And they're like, yeah, it's like, thank you. Like, Da, da, da. And I actually brought up like, I'm, I'm that guy that's trying to <laughs> climb all hundred tallest peaks in Washington. And, you know, the, I was just like super worried that this was going to be the one that got me. And one of them's like, oh man, I just read about you. So it was actually kind of a cool exchange. Need to send them some athletic brewing. That's still on my to-do list. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it basically got fixed as we got to it. Just like took that leap of faith and kept climbing and it came, they came through, they, they came through. So yeah, I mean, a terrible Rainier climb. Just everything from the top of Disappointment Cleaver on was just knee-deep mashed potatoes. Just just horrible, just so slow moving. My my worst and my slowest Rainier climb yet. Um normally I normally I kind of enjoy that grind, but this time it was pretty brutal. Thankfully, you weren't too far from the end, so that that helped. Yeah. Good thing this yeah, no wasn't like the first peak. <laughs> <laughs> and in those um, conditions, but well that makes me think. Um you mentioned that. I I've been wanting to ask, you weren't out there alone the whole time in the sense of like you, you saw people, other people are climbing these mountains, other people have outdoor aspirations. What were people's reactions when, when if you were able to tell them about what you were doing? Early on, and not so much people out there cuz a lot of the peaks are super remote. And I was doing them not at their usual season that people would go out to do them. Cause you know, again, mm -hmm. most people are ticking this list off and they're doing a few peaks a year. And so they're going to climb each peak at its most ideal season. And so I was doing a lot of them in the not normal season. So I had a lot of summits all to myself, um, just me and my climbing partner, um, or sometimes just solo all by myself. And then occasionally, like there was early on, there was some overlap with like single one-off peaks where you, the only way to do it is just, you're only going to get that one peak that day. There would be people out doing that push. Um, and they'd occasionally like recognize who I was and want to snap a photo with me. Um, or one guy, as I was like, um, glissading past him down the mountain was like, you're totally going to crush the record. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to do my best a little early to call it. I think I was only like... <laughs> 14 mountains in it's like too early to say anything but i'll i just like was like i'll do my best um so you know yeah so just just this cool experience where that kind of kept happening and there was always people out there who were stoked on what i was doing and i was surprised by the number of people who knew who i was without me saying anything like i was just focused and doing my thing and like staying out of people's way and moving as efficiently as i could and someone would be like oh you're 
you're that guy who's uh, breaking the record or you're Jason Hardrath or something like that. I mean, I, I guess I wear a, a, a pretty recognizable outfit since I like to pop the bill of my hat unless the sun is actually in my eyes. Um, so that's kind of a giveaway. But but still, it was like super cool that people were like aware of what I was doing and plugged in and bothered to like shoot some stoke my way while we were out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I kind of loved it. And yeah, I, I actually started telling people to send me a message. And one of my, one of my goals is to send out, send out a free six pack of, uh, athletic brewing to anybody whose name I got that, you know, actually shouted out to me and then bothered to send me a message afterwards just to be like, Hey, you know, it was uplifting to be out there grinding and have someone recognize me and be stoked about what I was doing. So Here's try to spend, <laughs> send, send some positivity back their way. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, no, and what was really cool as well is on the social media front, it was cool to sort of see some skeptics and some critics get won over start to finish by the sheer enormity and dedication and force of will that this took. And like them being people who like had done a lot of these peaks or all of these peaks themselves, like knowing what it was I had to endure to do it, just sort of like going from being skeptics to being like, yeah, that was extraordinary or that was amazing. Or, you know, one guy wrote me a message. He's like, you did it in such good style, like, you know, honoring all of the closures, going into the Chilliwacks the hard way instead of waiting for Canada to open. Because that was one of the interesting things is like Canada made its announcement that mid-August it was going to open its borders, which now they're open and a bunch of people have gone into the Chilliwacks the normal way. And like three different people have finished up the Bulgers list since then who only had a couple of peaks in there left to do. And I could have made, like I was far enough ahead of the record. It's like I could have made the decision to just wait for the border to open and gone in the gone in the easier way. But it's like, that was never actually an option, right? It's like, unless it was going to open on the day I needed to go in, if it was going to save me a day to go in the hard way, I was going to go in the hard way. Um, and so like, he shot me respect for that. Like you climbed the Northeast buttress of Goody. You you did the Bonanza Dark Traverse. You honored the closure on Do Dome and Sinister. And you went into the Chilliwacks the hard way. Respect, man. Um, and it was like, he's kind of a, you know, a big name in, you know, Seattle mountaineering. And to have him bother to write me a message just sort of out of the blue. Like I didn't even know he was paying any attention to what I was doing. Like that felt really good. Like, ah, oh, I did man. do this right. Um, <laughs> you can imagine what was there a specific or, or maybe a line someone said at some point that that stuck with you and kept you motivated or do you not think like that? Uh, there was one line actually. And you know, it's, it's silly and people can think less of me if they want to because of it. But, um, one guy who uh, I've been told he is, he can be a bit, he can be a bit cynical um, and a bit, a bit uh, negative, if you will. Sorry about that. He bothered, he bothered to write me a message that said, oh, you should add your name to this spreadsheet where we uh, keep track of people who are attempting the Bulgers because I want to follow your progress. And then he down below that wrote, actually, I just want to see you give up when you get to Custer. And so like Custer in my mind, I'm like, okay, he's, he's, you know, giving me some good beta here. Like apparently Custer's really hard. And like everything I read about Custer was that it was a giant choss pile where everything moved and, you know, one step forward, three steps back kind of thing. But so this whole time, like I'm, I'm doing, I'm like doing all these peaks and leading up to Custer. And I kept making like, you know, remarks about, you know, this is Custer practice, da, da, da. And oh man, Custer's going to be really bad, da, da, da. I get to Custer and we take the South Ridge up instead of the East Ridge because it just, made more sense on a high traverse from Rom. 
and it's like chossy rock, but kind of a fun exposed ridgeline. And then we find this nice handrail of solid rock so that at least you've got solid hands while your feet are, you know, in just complete choss that slides around. But I've always found that like, as long as I've got one solid thing to hold on to, it's not that bad. And so we fly up to the top of Custer and like I'm on Custer and it doesn't even make my, my like never again list. You know, it's like if I was up in the area, I would totally go up Custer again. I wouldn't, would absolutely not do the Silver Creek approach ever again, but I would go up Custer again if I came in from Depot Creek, the way from Canada. And so it just kind of felt this like, ha, <laughs> almost like I wanted to send the guy a message and be like, you thought I was going to give up on that? <laughs> <laughs> did, did you ever hear from him or any, any sort of interaction after that? Uh, he has not bothered to to send me any sort of interaction again. I love it, man. That's sometimes you need that, you know. I mean, I, this is a this is a stretch of a comparison, but but a, a negative podcast review will do the same thing. It's like, oh, oh, you think that's a problem? Well, let me let me go ahead and blow this out of the water. But oh, that's that's <laughs> that's amazing, man. I love that story. <laughs> that's too cool. Um, in your pursuit of the hundredth FKT. Are you aware of maybe just how many other FKTs you got in the process? Because for anyone that doesn't know, in the fastest known time is doing a route or a, or a peak or something faster than anybody else. And doing 100 routes, I, I assume you got a few of extras in there. Have you kept track of that or no? Uh, I think there's I think there's maybe three routes that, and I'm going to have to do some deeper research to be sure because I, like I like to be really sure um, you know, as reasonably as we can be with the availability of data that I actually did it faster than anybody. So I, I want to sift through some more stuff on Strava and different places and see if, you know, uh, I already submitted them as routes, uh, cause they weren't routes yet on the FKT website. Um, some of them were just single peaks that I thought were so classic and, and such good representations that it's like, ah, oh, this as a single peak deserves to like have people do hard attempts on it. And then others were like big classic linkups. Um, the Inspiration Traverse and Ragged Ridge are two just mega classic linkups that are very difficult. Um, that I'm like, okay, these two absolutely deserve to be FKTs. And you know, with the Inspiration Traverse, most people, if they're going to do it in a day, are going to ski it, which isn't an on-foot record. That's a you know ski record, a multi-sport record. Um, so that one, it's like, okay, there's a chance that I'll authentically have done that faster than anyone in the pursuit of these hundred peaks um, because we cranked it out pretty hard and fast to get all five of them in a day and get back to the car and on to the next thing. And then Ragged Ridge is one I know that I do not have the FKT on, but it's such a cool, such a cool route that I had to submit it because yeah, it was just an amazing experience. And I did manage to push it car to car, but I happen to know an old, an old crusher that did it before GPSs were a, a normal thing. And he definitely has a resume with GPS data to back it up on much harder terrain that he totally did it as fast as he claims he does. So, so yeah, there, there's probably three or four, I think that I'll end up, uh, end up actually having, you know, three or four extra FKTs from, from doing this one FKT, but you know, not as many as you might think that that's, that's the, that's the enormity, right? Like you could go do a hundred peaks in Colorado and you might get, you know, 60 of those that might be their own, like could become their own standalone FKT because it's a beautiful link up or it's a great car to car, you know, trailhead to trailhead. Cause you, you go up the one peak and it's just beautiful. But with these ones, 
there were some things like the Bonanza Dark Traverse would be a phenomenal FKT, but the logistics to get all the way out there and where you would start from and where you would finish, because it's just so in the middle of nowhere and there's no clean approach and there's no clean exit. Like you're taking a boat ride and then hiking 12 miles and then, you know, hiking another bunch of miles and bushwhacking and glacier travel and then doing the traverse and then coming down like one of three different options to get down and then exiting by a different way you came in and then the boat ride out. Like, it's just crazy. So there's no clean way to be like, Oh, how do I create an FKT for the Bonanza dark traverse? It's just like, no, that's just something that needs to exist for those who really want to go do it are going to find their way out to it and just go do it to experience it. But it's not one that like a formal FKT, like maybe they want to try to beat my time from Bonanza peak to dark peak, you know, informally just, you know, man against man, if you will, data against data, but not like a formal record. Um, just cause there's, it's not clean enough, right? There's gotta be, it's gotta be classic and repeatable, um, with a clean start and finish to be like a formal FKT in my opinion. And there's a bunch of these peaks that are just so convoluted to get to that you can't quite clean up, a an FKT route enough for it. Speaking of remoteness and just, um, being so out there, were you, were you surprised by how remote it is? Because to me, the Cascades, the North Cascades are, you know, among the most picturesque and beautiful mountains in the country. And I mean, up there with like the Grand Tetons in the sense of just awe, um, but they just don't get the attention. I feel like that tons of other mountain ranges do. Or, or does that surprise you? What, why, why do you think that is? Well, people like numbers and the the bigger the elevation number for the top of the mountain, the better it must be, right? So a lot of the a lot of the North Cascades are only nine thousand, eight thousand feet tall. So they must be worse mountains, right? They must be less picturesque. You know, absolutely wrong, but yeah, let them think that way and then we'll have more empty spaces to ourselves. But no, like this this was an insane undertaking. And like part of my thinking was I wanted to move this list because I mean, in Colorado, it has multiple lists of peaks. Wyoming has its list. Montana has its list. Idaho has its list. And I was like, okay, the Bulgers are the most historic list of the Pacific Northwest, not just Washington, but probably the whole Pacific Northwest. It's like, I want to move this thing out onto the frontier of, of mountain groups, you know, peak lists that have been, you know, like thoroughly explored in the form of speed, like a, a true start to finish push. And it, it was hard. It was really difficult. Um, you know, when I was setting out to do this thing, Eric Gilbertson, the former record holder, uh, he had just done the grand slam, which is 120 peaks through, uh, Colorado and Montana and Wyoming. Um, you know, all the tallest peaks from those three peak lists combined. And he said, even though there's 20 fewer peaks, the Bulgers list is probably 20% harder than what I just did. And that kind of set the frame like, okay, this is going to be for real. Like I'm, I'm about to launch myself into a frontier adventure where I'm going to be pushing my limits in many ways. And it totally delivered. Like I, I, I endured so much like we we jokingly call it bw you know have you ever heard of the water ice rankings you know water ice four water ice five 
Um, the higher the number goes, the more intense and dangerous the climbing is on the ice. We laughingly said, man, we did a bunch of BW5, bushwhacking five, where it's like <laughs> you're just hanging on for dear life from tree to tree, like not able to see the ground below you as you're going down like fourth class terrain, just hanging on to plants. Just wild, wild experiences. And yeah, I mean, it it delivered everything I could have hoped for and more for a 100th FKT and just as its own experience. And I think the next person who comes along, if someone someone looks at the wholeness of this thing and has the courage to step into it and and endure it, like it's going to deliver way more than they expected to. My goodness. That's incredible. What did it feel like to summit uh, Mount St. Helens? What, what was the finish line, the, the summit itself, or did you have to get back to the van? And also just just take us through that experience. What was that like? So, and I actually had to talk about this with the film crew that was documenting uh, this 100th FKT and, and the Bulgers and just kind of the story of my, my journey to 100 FKTs because they were trying to decide, like, do we want to position more camera people on the summit or back at the trailhead? And it's like, well, the timer doesn't stop until I take that final step back into the trailhead at the finish. And so I think that's going to be the place where I feel like the most stoked, where I've stopped the watch. Like the summit's going to be cool, but it's already a summit that, you know, not that any summit is a given, but based on the analysis of the weather and based on my research of like the walk up, like it's like almost as close to guaranteed as much as I hate to use those words, even in this moment, like making it to the summit, it was going to be really hard for me not to make it. So I didn't think, and sure enough, when I was up there, it was like cool, but it was still dark. Um, and I, I like, it was cool. Like, okay, I I'm on the summit of my last mountain. But then it's like, now let's have some fun. Like, I have no reason to hold back. Like, let's just rage. And that was actually something I'd been looking forward to. And I talked with Ashley about leading up to the final day. Like, I want to race the clock, like no holds barred on the final push down to the final trailhead. And I actually ended up with a reason to, because like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, my time ended up being 50 days, 23 hours, 43 minutes. So right, right. very my, scarily close to 51 days. My my rage down the mountain, just like sprinting down this rough volcanic terrain was enough to keep it under 51 days. So like, it was fun to have it all come down to this race. Cause I love racing the clock. That's the reason I do this stuff. Like I don't hate racing the clock. I enjoy it. That's why I've done hundred FKTs. I like that sensation of needing to push my body hard. And so to get to do that authentically, to race the clock in the final moments of a 50 day push to avoid it being a 51 full day push. Yeah, totally worth it. Totally fun. And so I was just pumped when I crossed the finish line, having beat that mark, um, you know, cause I knew I'd started at 6:21 AM on my day one. So I was like, if it's not 6:21 AM, when I hit the bottom, I've done it. And it was 6:04 when I crossed the line and yeah just started throwing gear around and screaming and yeah. <laughs> Gosh, man, that's, that is wild. I can't imagine the feeling. What, what did you do? What's the first thing you did when you got done and kind of things settled in and, and you had some decisions to make like, all right, what do we, where do we go now? Food. Food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what'd you eat? I had a chicken fried steak and then I ate 
a second breakfast and a, like a breakfast bowl of all sorts of, you know, eggs and veggies and stuff mixed. Um, and I think I ate two pancakes as well. So basically about three breakfasts worth of food. Oh man. <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't imagine the feeling and just the sense of relief, the sense of accomplishment and knowing that, you know, cause you're a teacher and you had to do this in the scholastic summer. Um, you had a, you had a deadline for, to, to go back to work, literally knowing that you also had time to process it before having to do that must've just been a huge relief as well. Oh, it's been awesome to have days to process this. It still feels, it still feels like I'm trying to read an encyclopedia with my nose pressed against the seam. Like it still feels like I'm just way too close to it to fully process everything I've learned and everything I've felt and everything I endured and all the different stories I have to tell from it and the, and the wisdom I'll glean from it. I think I'll be learning from this for the next two years. Two more like lifetime. I think you're going to be able to talk about this for the rest of your life. (laughs) Quite possibly, quite possibly. Right now with your nose against the seam, what do you think you did learn from this or one of the biggest things you learned? You know, I'm still trying to glean what new things I learned um, because I I came into this thing with a great amount of awareness about why I was throwing myself into it and what I was throwing myself into. And and so, like, I'm not sure what new things I've gleaned yet, but it very much reinforced in a very real and tangible way uh, a few things for me. One believing in the process and, and that, you know, dreaming big and planning big and preparing big is worth it, but it's going to get harder before it gets better. And you're going to go through dark times and hard times and difficult times. And you're going to feel like you're on the edge of exploding and shutting down. And it's going to seem impossibly large out in front of you. But if you just break back down into the, the thing you're looking forward to the play that's right in front of you or the challenge you get to face and and that next thing you're looking forward to and you just do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and you just execute and execute and execute. Eventually, you're climbing peak number 99 and peak number 100. And if it's true out in the mountains, it's true in life. And just having having another experience that just reinforced like the insane things we can do if we just stay in touch with the moment that's right in front of us. And that that's the real living, that that's, that's where the life is to be lived. It's not, it's not at the hundredth peak. It's, it's in all of the cool, amazing things we endure and we get to play on and we get to see and we get to experience and feel and touch and taste all along the way while we're pursuing that hundredth peak. Because once you're done, it's like you either find the next thing or you just get fat and lazy and your life's not any better. It's like you have to be in love with the process of what you're doing. You know, the journey is, is what it's about. And this definitely reinforced how much that's true. And, you know, just also just re, re reinforced my belief in other human beings that when you choose to do big, audacious, scary, enormous goals, people are going to rally to that. People are going to support that. People are going to respect that. People are, are going to, going to come alongside you and, and share whatever stoke they can muster um, that you, by choosing to do the biggest, carry the biggest burden you can, are going to inspire others to do more and be better humans. You know, even if it's just in that moment that they excitedly come alongside you and stoke you up during a time where you're feeling exhausted, like you can produce more good in the world by choosing 
to take on the biggest challenge that you think you can, because people are going to notice that enormity. We have a, we have a sense inside us when we see people doing something, you know, even if you're, I was actually chatting about this uh, just while being back in Klamath Falls today, I just got back a few hours ago and a friend of mine has taken up cycling and he was biking up a very difficult hill where he just had to grind um, on his gears, like, you know, just out of gears, just slow cadence, just grind, 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 standing in the saddle or standing above the saddle in the, in the pedals. And this person driving in a car behind him as he gets to the top, who's, you know, been held up by like having to go slower at the top, just cheers for him, right? Like out of the blue, like we notice, we notice when we see that struggle in other human beings and it brings this sense of awe and respect and this positivity out of us. And like you choose to do those things, you're bringing that out of the people around you, the community around you, you're sharing that inspiration. And this was a, a another testament to the good in humanity. If you're just willing to to bear a bit of a burden, people are going to, people are going to respect it. Beautifully put and absolutely true. I think we all want to do something like this, like our own boulders. And so when we see someone pursuing it, we, we want to, we want to help because we know if we ever take that chance ourselves, we, we, we hope we get that same, same effort returned to us from other people. So yeah, I, I just think, I just think that's what it is. And that's so cool to see that even for this, you sensed that and you saw that firsthand. If you don't mind, let's, let's get into some rapid fire questions. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's rapid fire. Yeah. Cause I and should this probably wrap you know, this up. One, it's not one word or, you know, it's a couple sentences might be tough for you. You're not a rapid fire person. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You've noticed that about me. No, it's true. It's true. I don't do rapid fire well, but I'll do my best. Let's do this. I don't think any time I've answered a phone call for you from you, we've been on the phone less than an hour. I'll put it that way. <laughs> That is in a good way, true. in a good way. It's been like, <laughs> Hey, all right. I got some time. Yeah. I know you got some time. Let's, let's chat. It's always a good talk. All right. So, you know, I know that you're like literally so close to this, like you said, ju just finished, um, so much to process and a lot to get ready for with the school year starting soon. Uh, what would you say you're most curious about right now after all this? Um, well, the, like I said, the, there's a documentary that was filmed about this whole journey to hundred FKTs and these hundred peaks. Like I would say like one of the things I'm really curious about is like, how's that going to change my life? That could potentially, you know, open up a lot of doors, like going to these film festivals, like Banff and five points and potentially having more people interested in having me as a coach or a guide or a speaker, like that could alter my day-to-day -day schedule. Like and I'm, I'm interested in all those things. Um, I do love, I love speaking. I love, I love that moment where you create an aha moment, a breakthrough moment that helps somebody live their life better. So I'm going to be stoked on anything like that, but it's a, it's this huge curiosity and maybe it'll be nothing. Maybe absolutely nothing will change when this documentary comes out, but that seems unlikely. So like, I'm kind of curious about that. Like I'm stoked and a little scared because um, I have a pretty happy, comfortable life right now. And it might suddenly get a bit faster. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, it, it's, uh, you never know. You never know. I, all I know is I'm sure I, you know, I like Richard Branson talks about opportunity as a bus stop. And he says, you know, if you just wait at the bus stop, another bus will come. Just jump on that next one. If you feel like you miss one, don't freak out about it. Um, another bus will come. And with this, I just think you'll have a lot of buses in a row and you can kind of choose which ones you want to get on. <laughs> if that makes sense. That's fair. That's we'll fair. See. I like that. We'll see. Um, and I know that's probably too difficult to, to maybe answer now, but what is, what is your biggest goal not yet achieved? Mm, biggest goal not yet achieved. 
probably not the most fair time to ask you this in all honesty. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't quite know. I just, I think of it more like I have more good I can do in my life. And, you know, I would love it if I can get to the end of my life and have some degree of certainty that I've left a net good behind, that my life hasn't been a waste or a negative or a drag on other human beings, that I've actually left a positive ripple in in the culture of humanity. And so, yeah, there's still work to be done. When you were out there on this effort, was there a daily habit that you stuck to that really got you through it? Something that, you know, maybe it's stretching or something directly tied to your body, or, or was there something you kind of used daily to decompress? Was there anything like that? Fluidity, being able to adapt and have almost every day go completely different in how it started and how it finished and how it went in the middle. I would say that was the most consistent thing that got me through and just being able to thrive in the lack of stability. So the most consistent thing was inconsistency is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. It was a complex way of saying that. I love it. That's, that's such a great answer. The daily habit is the lack of habits and the lack of, I can only imagine, I can only imagine how just totally bonkers and different. You think climbing a hundred peaks would just be a system. Okay. Do this every day, a hundred times, but it had to be, you know, just so far from that. Is there a hobby that you have outside of fastest known times that, you know, maybe most folks don't know about or something you practice on the side? Something I practice on the side. Hmm. What is something I do that people wouldn't know about? Oh, I taught myself how to ride a unicycle recently. And so I, I like to unicycle around here and there. Um, that's probably fairly unknown. Are, are there any FKTs involving a unicycle? That's always the next question that comes up. <laughs> not Dang yet. It. I, I try not to be the, you know, ask the same question that everyone else does, but I have to know. Well, that one's the obvious one. Like it you almost is. have it to definitely ask it. Is. Hey, I, I, I tell you what, you know, all the ones that you have in cycling, just redo those on the unicycle. Um, I know plenty of people that unicycle tour coast to coast, you know, uh, mountain bike on a unicycle. It's, it's, it's a thing, not a huge thing, but it's a thing. Definitely lots of opportunity there. Do you, do you have an a favorite athletic brewing beer? Favorite athletic brewing beer. If I was to grab one right now, since I'm a, I'm an in the moment, you know, like I said, game time decision kind of person. If I were to grab one right now, it would be free wave. Same 100%. Oh, you know, actually I might go for the rainbow wall. That was a really good, mm. the, the rain, that might've been more favorite that, that, that might've topped the IPAs for me. The, the rainbow wall. That was so good. That was um, a really good beer. Well, man, speaking of which, the beer, you know, here at Athletic Brewing, we talk about uh, brewing without compromise. Uh, as you know, it, that's what it takes to make a crazy idea work is doing it completely without compromise. But you can't really just do one thing in your life without compromise. You kind of have to live that whole lifestyle, like everything you do. Um, what does it mean to you to live without compromise? Um, I think some people might think it means like that you can't ever make a mistake or you can't ever do anything where like, it feels like you're giving less than 110%. And I think, I think that can be a, a way of ending up at burnout, like just burned out and not able to even give a hundred percent to anything or having to give 0% to everything for a chunk of time while you recover. I think 
I think living without compromise is directing exactly the maximum amount of focus and effort and drive to exactly what you need to be doing, you're, what you're driven to be doing in, in that given time frame. Um, it's, it's almost like the pacing on this, this giant FKT, right? It's like, I couldn't just yard sale on day one, um, or for the first week, because it's like, well, I would have never finished. Um, so it's like, there's, there is some strategy to it, but it's about being, it's about leaving something where you've given at the end of it, you've given hard work, well done that you can be proud of. Like I said, to me, to me, that's living without compromise, where you feel that you've structured your life and you've lived your life in such a way that when it's all said and done, you're like, damn, that was hard work well done. And I wouldn't change a thing. And, you know, that's how I feel about this record. That's how I feel about my teaching, even though it's like I'm not a perfect teacher. Sometimes I don't do some things as well as other teachers. And I'm like, dang, like I'm not as good of a teacher in this way as them. But it's like the stuff I do and the stuff I care about and stuff I believe matters. I'm proud of. And to me, to me, that's living without compromise is giving everything you're capable of giving without breaking yourself for the stuff that matters the most. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.